0: You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgbm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from The Extreme History Project and KGBM Community Radio.
1: Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, We bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and
0: historians about how they bring the past alive.
1: Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we're the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we are at the KGVM headquarters speaking via Zoom with Dr. Lily White about her work as a forensic anthropologist. And we are super excited to talk with Lily today. She is really fun to listen to because we have listened to some of her other podcasts. Um, But before we do that, Crystal, I want to check in. How was your week?
0: It was great. It is Halloween. It's we're coming up to Halloween, so we've we been sure are. At, so. And you
1: have beautiful black nail polish know, on I your do. acrylic nails and I'm super jealous. I do. Yeah, yeah it yep. was
0: that was I haven't done um acrylic nails for years. I haven't done them since I got married, which was uh many many years ago. So, um
1: I know you were spying mine I from was. when I went to New York. Yeah. I know and now I'm jealous you that inspired mine are gone. Me. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so
0: you and my daughter, so Emily has the most beautiful oh. hands. And she has the most beautiful nails. Her nails are always done beautifully. So I'm like, I want to do that. So I did it. And Halloween's it was, it's the really perfect. Fun. Yeah. yeah, awesome. Yeah. So, so yeah. So it's been a it's a been a good week because we have spent a lot of time in the cemetery. Do um, you know how much I love the cemetery? So.
1: <laughs> Not for a personal loved one, but for right, uh, visits for, for historical historic
0: reasons. Okay. Yes, excellent, yes. Excellent. And so. Um, so we've been doing a lot of cemetery tours, and nice. which has been great. And yeah. we've had so many people interested in our cemetery tours this year. So, um, Such a fun way to learn about history. Yeah, awesome. we've been in there. So what about you, Nancy?
1: Well, I spent a good chunk of last week in Boise. Uh, my daughter was looking at Boise State, so I was actually there when we recorded our last podcast with Ellen Baumler. And um, we loved it there. Boise has a lot of interesting history and it's on display everywhere. So they have a Mm -hmm. lot of museums and trails and parks named after particularly historical women. So there was a lot about it that I really liked there. A lot of historic core to their downtown. Um, So I see a road trip in our future, Crystal, to maybe go over there. I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's awesome food and places to stay and good shopping just as icing on the cake. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. And then aside from that, I've had actually three uh, former students are all applying to go back to grad school um, in anthropology or archaeology um, this fall and it's so exciting and fun to be able to help them onto that next step. They've all taken various amounts of time off kind of figured out exactly what they think they want to do. And I'm helping them with just advice about putting together a statement of purpose and, and visiting people ahead of time and, and just a chance to um, put their best foot forward as they're applying. That's and other great. than that, yeah, it's been at the store, another yet another remodel. <laughs> with um, Handy Andy Um, the the
0: remodel sagas yeah this time
1: um, beautiful handmade tile um, from the Onyx Tile Studio here in Bozeman and then uh, Cheryl Hendry's husband uh, Andy Marshall putting in the tile beautiful job I feel like it it complements the historic building that I'm in. Mm. Uh, so that's been really exciting. And he put some, some old patinaed copper along with it. So I'm excited about that. Again, it was a little bit exhausting. And then um, next week, I'm off to... England and I'm going wow. to see some amazing historic places oh, there my sister is turning a certain age and I am going to be there to celebrate with her and I'm bringing mm. Kaylee so nice. um so that's what's going on in my week and um you've got a big week I got a big oh. week I've had a big yeah. week I'm gonna have a big yeah, week you are. and we should we should get back we should to Lily before we do that we just want to say who our sponsor is for this episode yeah
0: so our sponsor for this episode is the Western Heritage Center so uh, we'll talk a little bit more about them as we go forward Forward. So we are so glad to have you with us today, Lily.
2: Welcome. Welcome, Lily. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to start off as we always do by telling our listeners a little bit about you. So Dr. Lily White received her BSLS in 2005 from MSUB and her bachelor's in forensic anthropology in 2011, her master's in forensic anthropology in 2013, and her PhD in anthropology in 2019 from the University of Montana. That is a lot of degrees, Lily. Wow, you've been through it. Lily and her husband, Stocky White, also a PhD in anthropology, are the owners of Bone and Stone Anthrosciences, LLC, where they provide anthropological and archaeological consulting services and other educational workshops. Between 2015 and 2018, Lily created and facilitated a medico legal death investigation conference at the University of Montana, perhaps the first of its kind, where she provided continuing education to hundreds of attendees. She is a medical investigator with the Department of Health and Human Services and Natural Disaster Medical System. She has worked as an adjunct instructor at the University of Montana Teaching Fundamentals of Forensic Science. She's also an instructor for TriTech Forensics Training, as well as working with Kenyan International Emergency Services as an FAC slash SAT member, and you will have to explain what those acronyms mean uh, as we go further into the podcast. Lily teaches courses on a variety of subjects, including cultural and forensic anthropology, human osteology. Death notification interactions, including compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma, human decomposition, recovery of scattered human remains and burials, cold and current death investigations and case reviews, as well as grief facilitation, dark tourism, and I can't believe it, but even other fascinating topics. So this is a pretty amazing and interesting um, resume, and I think we have a million questions that we're going to have for you today. Lily, welcome.
2: Thank you. Thanks.
0: So, Lily, we always start off by asking our guests how they got into the field of archaeology, anthropology, forensic anthropology in your case. And I know you came to this a little bit later in life. And so I'm curious how you found yourself in this field.
2: Well, I, I've always been fascinated with death, uh, but I did never see it as a career uh, when I went to um, right out of high school, I went to beauty school. And right after that, uh, quickly after that, I opened my own salon and and owned my salon for oh, 20 years. And uh, I got in a car accident. And that sort of took me out of commission as far as uh, doing hair. And I didn't have anything to fall back on. So it freaked me out. So I decided I was going to go you know, do kind of a quick and dirty degree, <laughs> because I didn't have any education besides beauty school. And so I, I went back to school, or I went to school um, at MSU. And I was I was so intimidated by the process. I was uh, 38 or right around there. I was intimidated by the process. So I just chose communication. And, you know, just started through it. And and it was pretty funny, because um, I wanted it to be easy. And so the A's were coming easy, and everything was coming easy. And finally, my advisor called me out, um, Melinda Tilton. And she said, Now, (laughs) do you want this to be easy? Or do you want it to be challenging? And I said, Well, I
1: you're like I, I want, want I want a to... job after this <laughs> <Yeah>. ultimately <laughs> but, and probably yeah. for it to be easy <laughs>
2: yeah. right. right that was the that was the easy answer and and she said why don't you challenge yourself and why don't you do something else or you know what other interests you have and and you know just trying to bring this out of me and and she said are you doing anything like in school right now that's interesting and I said yeah actually um, I'm taking a class from uh, Dr. Dave Carnos, and it was called Death, Dying and Medical Ethics. And it was every provocative subject uh, to do with death, dying and medical ethics. It was um, assisted euthanasia, abortion, um, death penalty. And it was just such a stimulating class that I thought, well, I, you know, I could sort of sidle into that. And, you know, see how that works out. And, and so what I ended up doing was creating myself um, sort of a, a different studies, internships. And so I worked with, you know, hospice and Life Center Northwest, sort of organ procurement. And then I landed on um, a coroner internship. And just for about a year from 2004 to 2005, I followed around Yellowstone County coroners for that year. And just sort of shadowed them and, and, you know. What an amazing
1: experience that must have been, Lily. I I took a death and dying course as an undergraduate at Emory, but I I was kind of too young to imagine it. And I was getting an anthropology degree, but I didn't quite make the connection. And it's so interesting to see as you went back, you know, at a different age with a different view on things how you were able to say, oh, boy, this really has some potential to be a career and not, not just a passing interest, you know, in yeah, ethics. And, I,
2: and going into it, I was thinking, well, maybe I could run for coroner, you know, and so that was good why for you. I sort of yeah. angled into that. And I thought, well, let me see if I can handle it first. And as it turns out, you know, I was I was that kid that preferred macabre over, you know, mundane, and so, you know, I always preferred the Adams family or the Munsters <laughs> over the, you know, Brady Bunch. So right. um, it turns out I, I was able to handle sort of the gore and things like that. But what I found uh, really fascinating was the human mm. um, part of it. And I, you know, sort of finished up that degree pretty quickly and then knew that I would, what I wanted to do with that was. I didn't know enough about the body or what happens to the body, you know, before, during and after death. So in order to even, you know, run for coroner or be a coroner, I just thought, well, now I have to know forensic anthropology, and so right. I, I would have, have thought
1: out- even, like, do you have to have a medical degree? And I, I was listening to one of your podcasts where you're saying, especially in Montana, that's that's not necessarily what it takes to be a coroner. If you don't have to have a medical degree, there are other positions as coroner that's not required.
2: Right. In Montana, you're required to, uh, well, there the main coroners are elected. Okay. And then the, um, they can deputize coroners. And then the so they can have several different deputy coroners, but they're not required to have a medical degree, but what they're required to do is do a 40-hour course on, you know, coroner training, and then every two hours, they have to do 16 hours of continuing ed, but that's not what I wanted. I wanted to know if I was going to go and investigate deaths, then I want to know, what is that body doing? Right? Why is it in that place? Or I wanted to know what happens when someone's shot? What happens when someone's stabbed? Yeah, so I wanted to know what happens to that body. And then I also wanted to know how to how to interact with scenes. And so I wanted the additional degree. And yeah, then, there's a oh, huge
1: science of forensic investigation. That's mm-hmm. sort of the investigating part. And then also the science, as you said, of the body. So that would have been an interesting um, thought to be like, what where, where do I go next to get my training? So you felt it took you to forensic anthropology.
2: I did. I, I felt like initially, it took me to forensic anthropology. And that took me to sort of decomposition studies and uh, forensic entomology and what happens to bodies in Montana as opposed to oh right the mm. South yeah
1: different and conditions different places mm-hmm. and
2: so I ended up um, sort of doing an internship and some other um, like it was a sort of a field school at the. One of the body farms. Oh, I was yeah. going to say, did you go? Yeah. You went to a body farm. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. When I
1: tell people these places exist, they're like, "What?" Because <laughs> people who are interested are really interested, and that's where they're doing that real work of looking at decomposition, kind of under controlled circumstances, but outside in various weather and soil conditions. It's amazing.
2: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And and so it you know you end up that. I did that during my master's research. And so that was sort of in the, in the middle of that. Um, and so I, then I moved from, once I got my master's with, uh, I did decomp and it had a, an element of forensic entomology. Then it was sort of, my mind had wrapped up around like, it's like, okay, I've got that part. Mm. Now I want the social part of dying. Uh, So
1: what do you you mean by that, Lily?
2: Well, I I sort of I wanted to look at the tension between um, the biological death and the social death. Mm. And so, you know, it was it was easy to do like easy for me and easy for people to have like understand biological death or, you know, it the your body or the case becomes an it. Mm -hmm. Uh, it it becomes science Mm -hmm. and so you sort of at death scenes or things like that your your mind isn't on family uh you know the emotional part or the social part of death and so it was really interesting during my uh my master's research I went to a lot of um, coroner conferences and I would go to advanced coroner trainings and they would let me in as the as the non-coroner because I was a forensic anthropologist and we would have these conversations. And I would say to them, what do you need from me? Like, what do you what would you need from a forensic anthropologist? And they said, well, of course, you know, to help us with the bones and help us with, you know, what are we seeing here or whatever. But they said, honestly, we could really use some help on cultural mm-hmm. and how to deal with families. Because we're lacking big time in that. And so I just sort of let them guide me because I felt like they were going to be my client.
1: So, Lily, was it
2: the 40-hour
1: training? It didn't really include for them a component of dealing with families and notification and grief and that sort of aspect? The 40-hour training was more about maybe legally what they had to do or...
2: Yeah, and it ended up – there's such a broad um, – th- they have to study so much during sort of that 40-hour death um, uh, death training that it, it covers everything from, you know, how to call a death and um, just sort of toxicity levels. It, I, there's mm. just so mm. much in it that they, they barely sweep by mm. that portion. And, you know, uh, they just – um, just didn't have time for it. And a lot of like the death, um, the different, like I went to St. Louis and they had a, uh, um, it was medical legal death, um, training. And so I did their 40 hour thing at the time and they didn't have any death notification. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just, it just, they barely scratched the surface on it. Now they have more, so, I noticed their curriculum now for the forty hours, and there's a there's a little bit more, but there's just so much to cover in that short amount of time for them that it it it's just not what they cover. they don't um cover the human part of it they don't cover the the emotional and and actually, like so many of them said to me, "This is so hard on me mm, this is I can't you know imagine. I, I, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, and, and not you to know have they any... just
0: training in that or any you know real real help with that would be really well and hard. a
2: lot of them tend to be um like a lot of the corners tend to be uh like law enforcement things mm-hmm. like that so so they're they're not trained to have that emotional side to them and and so it's uh, you know this is my job this is what i need to do i need to keep it together and so they're like, this is it, but it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot yeah. of them would, you know, some of the people wear two hats. They'll, they'll go to a death scene or a crime scene and they'll be, you know, dealing with the body or whatever. And then they'll have to go immediately mm. afterwards to a death notification. And they're like, I can smell it. You know, wow. I can see it and I can feel it. And then I have to go to the uh, really, really emotional part of informing family. So, right. um, you know, they just said help, yeah. <laughs> right. help. Yeah. So that's, that sort of became my mission is, is to
1: figure yeah. out how to yeah. help. Well, we want to get a little bit into, um, you, the fact that you have a PhD in forensic anthropology, you pursued that at a master's and PhD level. And, um, as we know, anthropology is a four field discipline. We have cultural anthropology, archeology, span um, linguistics, and then um, really physical anthropology, and then within physical anthropology, we have sort of this subdiscipline of forensics. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about um, two things, really what what your specialty has become um, in or was maybe for your doctoral dissertation in forensic anthropology, and then. What it's like, I mean, we all have ideas from TV shows, but what it's like in real life to be a forensic anthropologist, a day in the life, so to speak.
2: Okay. Okay. Well, uh, basically, forensic anthropology is the scientific study of human skeletal remains in a medical legal um, sense. And so what we do as forensic anthropologists, for the most part, what I do is I get calls to look at cases. I get calls to help find bodies. I get calls to um, help do identifications of um, people usually through skeletal remains. And so that, that's a big portion of, of what I do when I get um, cases from different, I get a lot of different states, Florida, Idaho, uh, Colorado, um, different people will either ask me to come out and take a look or I'll just take the, they'll send me the case. And so, what I end up doing is is looking at a portion of it and just sort of giving my opinion on what happened. Uh, most of the time, it'll be going over the skeletal remains and and looking for injuries or you know any obvious injuries, things like that. So, um, I help in that way. I also um, sort of work with a multidisciplinary team. I have some great people that I work with that are crime scene investigators. Uh, forensic pathologists, people like that. So we just sort of collaborate together and work together. um, And we give workshops on that. Um, I just gave a workshop with another forensic anthropologist, uh, Dr. Hilary Parsons, we did that in Albany, New York, and we're going to do one here at the first week of December in San Diego. And so what we do is uh, present. Like this one coming up will be a five-day course on um, osteology, uh, forensic taphonomy, forensic entomology, um, how to how to recover, document, and um, collect the human remains from scatter or buried remains. So that's sort of what I do. Um, who shows up to those um,
1: workshops that you do? Is it is it law enforcement, students? Is it a wide array of
2: different types of people? It's it's been more law enforcement because that's who uh, I I have been doing it for this TriTech forensics, and so they they have um, more relationships with law enforcement, CSI. Um, like the New York, the Albany group were, um, U, uh, New York troopers. And so San Diego will be a police department, CSI. Um, so that type of group, so more law enforcement and students, you know, if they want to do it, you know, it just depends on what they need. So the, it, it ends up being law enforcement. Mm -hmm.
0: so what did you do for your PhD Lily what was your PhD research Uh, it
2: was death notification interactions Um, so I did basically an ethnography of death notification interactions because I wanted um, I was basically looking for the power in the narrative and I wanted to tell the story of both sides I wanted to tell the the notifier's side. And I also wanted to tell the, the people being notified. And so I um, observed and interviewed both notified and, and the next of kin, the next of kin and the people that were notifying. And so I wanted them to t- tell me what it was like, and I wanted to share their stories. And I wanted, um, the, a lot of the courses that are out there on death notifications are um, a how to here's the steps that you go through to, to, you know, deliver a death notification. Well, uh, they've become, you know, quite structured and quite rigid. And so, um, but not all that realistic. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted, I I want to start sharing more about letting people know that uh, it's, they're very unique. Each one is different. And you can't, there's not a script. You can't go with the script. So not a formula. Yeah. Interesting that this seems so, to
1: be kind of a, I bet not a course that you would normally take yourself in a forensics program. Mm-hmm. So you were really seeking this out on your own.
2: Yes. And I, I have, that has been, it was sort of, uh, half of my trouble, even going through college was I'm old enough to know what I'm, what I want. And I'm stubborn enough to stick in that, to sit in that spot and sort of argue about what I want and what I wanted for um, kind of humankind. And the weird part was the forensic anthropologists were like, well, you don't really fit in our group with that. (laughs) And then the cultural anthropologists, they're like, well, aren't you a forensic anthropologist? So you know, I sort of – I was in that I, – I felt like I did this dissertation sort of in that tension between the two. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. And so I I really felt like I was, uh, a, you know, sort of bringing it into anthropology. And it was interesting because uh, the, several of my, my people on my committee said, you know, how is this anthropological? And mm-hmm. I said, how is it not – anthropological.
0: Right. right. It's, it's all about human interaction. And you're combining two sub disciplines,
1: <laughs> yeah. as you said. I mean, right. it's, it's about doing an ethnography in the context of um, death and dying, but also in this medical legal field and really for people who, who haven't had that opportunity to have that work done. Um, that sounds fascinating and good uh, for yeah. you for, for bullying your way into it. That's awesome.
2: Yeah. And I wanted to, con- I wanted to contribute to the anthropology of death in a more um you know sort of contemporary way and i also i wanted to take you know sort of the anthropology of death out of the exotic and put it into the mundane you know and i i wanted to say this you know this isn't sexy and this isn't exotic this is everyday happening but but we are anthropologists and we should be able to to handle this and so it was really interesting too that um ending up doing this ethnography because when I did the internship all those years ago of 2004 to 2005, I was actually doing an ethnography. You were doing participant
1: observation, which is classic (laughs) ethnographic method. Absolutely. Right.
2: Right. And, and even, you know, to the point of interviewing, you know, and, and, you know, the talking afterwards and watching and sitting through it. And, and one of the things that got me into the death notification was that I had an experience during the coroner um, internship with the deputy coroner. And I I went with him everywhere. He had been in the deputy coroner for about 27 years. And I, so I went with him on one of our death notifications. And um, he always did a really great job. And so we went in. He did the death notification. We walked out. And he said, well, I blew that. Oh, boy. I, I blew it. Mm-hmm. and that and it just sort of stopped me in my tracks. And I said, Oh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think I think you did great. I th- and he said, No, I did. I blew it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't my perception, but it was his perception. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I didn't. I sat with it a few minutes. And I thought, Well, if that's his perception, what was their perception? Right. And so that always stuck with me. And it was, You know, it was something that kind of sat back in my head and it was sort of one of those research questions that always kind of annoyed me back here, even doing my forensic anthropology part of it. I was always like, I'm getting back there. Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) It's so interesting because it's such a pivotal moment in people's lives that they'll never forget is when they heard that information. And and there's such an emotional imprint that even sometimes the exact words will be burned in, sometimes not. It's just the feeling or the impression. But it's not a moment anyone will ever forget, and and to to have that responsibility, um, it must have been amazing to watch that and to watch someone who'd been doing it for twenty seven years, but feel like sometimes he still might have not gotten it right. Um, yeah. yeah, so mm-hmm. I can see how that became a a focus for you. That's amazing, and, and
0: you know what a what a um, gift for those. Um, corners to be able to come to a workshop that you provide and learn you know they probably all want to learn how to do that one particular part of their job better because um, yeah. that's such an important part and so what a what a important service to provide them with more information on how to do that through your research um, so
2: I had a lot of them thank me f- for doing it they said the Yeah,
1: I can. What a relief
2: that you're doing this and and to let people know that this isn't easy for us either. And it can also be
1: so lonely. I think Uh, if you don't have a you've created um, through your trainings, I'm sure, quite a community of people for which they can hear other experiences and feel like they're part of a larger community doing this work. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: So, Nancy, did you want to follow up with anything else on that question, or should we move forward? No, I think okay. we can move forward. Okay. So, um, you know, we kind of, um, Nancy and I kind of live in the past. You live in the present. <laughs> but I
2: live in the past, too. You do.
0: You do. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, you know, we kind of look at things historically. And so oftentimes, you, you know, we're looking at death historically and looking at, um, people's lives but their but oftentimes their death because their death is when we get records of these people this you know the death is when we find out the most information about people through their death certificates through their obituaries through their um you know their deed records when they die who they're giving their land and property to so you know we we kind of live in in that realm and it's so interesting sometimes we get these little glimmers of of information about how people in the past dealt with death and sometimes we get more than glimmers sometimes we get a lot of information about how people dealt with death and it seems like people in the past were such so much more engaged in the the death of their family member and then the aftermath of that death where they would wash the body they would prepare the body there was rituals involved in all of that there was um time to mourn there was uh there was customs around mourning, and we still have some of those things today in the present I would say but in in American culture, I feel like though a lot of those customs have been let go that we don 't have those that we don 't we are not close as close to death as people in the past were, and we've handed a lot of those um those things off to undertakers and morticians and and, um, and other people who are, are professionals in the field of dealing with um, death and dying of, of loved ones. And so I just wanted your take on this, because I think about this a lot, and I talk to people about this all the time and, and wonder about this. But I wanted, you know, your thoughts on this. And, and if we are distancing ourselves from death, what are the implications of that for our society today?
2: Yeah, great, uh, great comments. Great question. Um, I I think uh, I'll start with sort of part one of that. And and in my mind, I I feel like we are sanitizing death. Mm. And, uh, you know, and that could have come when people couldn't deal with bodies with plagued bodies or smallpox or things like that, where they couldn't actually deal with um, their family members or whatever. So I feel like when you know, someone's dying at home or whatever, the, their first instinct is to rush them off to the hospital. So so people, instead of dying at homes, they're dying in institutions, hospitals, things like that. And so it's sort of, I feel like it's sort of sanitizing death. And and it is, it is truly, I believe it is distancing people from death. And, you know, it, it's sort of, it's interesting um, because during my dissertation um, out of the, you know, people talking and, and, you know, sort of these, this ethnography is I came up with uh, what I refer to as distance management theory and that people actually will not necessarily even, even knowingly um, but they'll distance themselves from death either physically or emotionally. And sometimes that's how we have to handle it. Uh, So, so, I see that happening just because it's um, maybe too much and, and it becomes okay, like culturally okay to distance yourself from death. And so that I found that part really fascinating um, and that truly I, I think people are distancing themselves from death. And what's really been fascinating, I'm, I'm driving back into current, is yeah. sort of the COVID
1: yeah. deaths. Yeah. And yeah. what's happening it's- is...
2: is you know, we weren't necessarily distancing ourselves because we wanted to, but because out of necessity. So, you know, these people were not able to have really funerals They or they were doing funerals uh, from Zoom funerals. And so it started taking the, the personal element out of it. Um, and then I, I don't know if you guys have noticed, I'm sure you have, but, you know, sort of obituaries have gotten shorter mm. um memorial services uh, you know I, I i don't know what percentage anymore of the the people that pass away are not having services mm. no serve you know no services at this time right, you know a, right. a service will be in the future sometime and and you know the obituaries are getting smaller and sort of the 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 you know, last celebration of death is getting smaller and smaller, and so I can't help but, you know, recognize that and see that that additional distancing, and then uh, politicizing death. Mm, you know, the yeah. this whole, you know, this whole COVID death. I mean, did we ever in our in our country think we were going to get over seven hundred thousand deaths, mm, mm. and then have people just just act like It's nothing. Or here in Montana, we've had 2,300 deaths and people are just like, what? And people are dying
1: alone Mm -hmm. without their family around them because they're not allowed to have anyone in. I think unless it really happens to you or someone close to you, it still feels distanced. You know. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So it's not yeah, happening and- in our neighborhoods, which I feel like is kind of what you're saying, Crystal. It's oh, it's happening in an institution, as you said, and so it's, it's physically removed, and then it does seem to me like these memorial services are also then temporarily removed, right? We're not celebrating yeah. people until a while after, so people aren't showing that raw emotion at that time. You're not dealing with burying a body at that time or cremating someone. So there is a a lot of distancing going on, it seems like, in in our current culture here in the States. Yeah.
2: And I sort of worry about, because even the distancing just from that death, are we distancing ourselves from grief?
0: Right. And are
2: we delaying our grief? Uh, And that's scary, too, because what happens to it when it, you know, grief is bottled up? So if you can't part of the ritual of death is the mourning and the crying and the hugging and the laughter. And if we're distancing from that, we're not getting that. Mm -hmm. And so that, that worries me. And um, I'm worried, I'm worried how casual it's becoming. And uh, in this, in the same vein, you know, we all know that death is universal, that it happens to everyone, but to, to sort of lose the celebration of, of death, um, yeah, this mm-hmm. sad, mm-hmm. and yeah. and you know it's sort of celebrating a person's life, and and now it's becoming just sort of no big deal. Um, so I do I worry about those things. I worry about the grieving process, whether people are truly grieving. Um, mm-hmm. You know, without your friends and family and and your community, is there true grieving, um, right. or or you your grief is alone? and that you're not able to share your grief and so I worry about that I look at the you know suicides there have been Mm -hmm. even in my little community of Big Fork there have been a lot of young suicides and and you wonder if people are properly grieving or if the kids are understanding and and yeah there's a lot there's a lot. If grief is
1: shared there's more sharing that burden and and you're Mm -hmm. right that loneliness my own um, parents have passed away both of them and being from a um, Irish Catholic upbringing, they both had wakes and funerals, and these both happened just within a year of each other, and they were buried right next to each other. But what I remember was it—it was—it felt like so much to plan it. But then, when it was happening, either the, the wakes allowed you to be in the presence of the body and talk with people, and I learned so many things about my parents. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I learned so many things from people who knew them at all these other parts of their life before I was ever alive. And those are the things that have stuck with me. And then we did have the, you know, the formal mass and the burial. And there there is a lot about that ritual that um, comforts me now to have gone through that and to be able to share that and to see who showed up. There was, um, there was a lot about that that I didn't realize how much that was going to matter in the long run for me, you know, because anything in the moment is difficult, but... But boy, it made a, it made a huge difference. Um, and with that, we're just going to take a quick station break, Lily, before we move on with questions. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Dr. Lily White about her background in forensic anthropology and death work. So, Lily, we're big fans of Caitlin Daughtry. Is that how you say your last Is name? Is that
0: how you say it, Lily? Do you know? Sure. I'm not sure. I I don't know. Hopefully she's not listening. (laughs) Um,
1: But she's amazing. First name, Caitlin. And she has written, When Smoke Gets in My Eyes, From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death, and... Will the cat eat my eyeballs? Which has to be one of my favorite (laughs) titles ever for a book. Um, So, she is a woman who works in the funeral industry. She has often had, uh, she often discusses that she's had an early fascination with death herself. She started as a mortician and then founded the Order of the Good Death, which is a death positive movement. You have Somewhat of a similar philosophy on changing some of our standard practices, at least in this country, around death, and to make them more compassionate, including death notification interactions, as we've been discussing. So, tell us a little bit more about this.
2: Well, I love her too. I I'm I follow her on Instagram, and I love oh, you know the humor that she infuses and and uh, her videos and her all of it. So um, I I love when we can take something as difficult as death and sort of lighten it and also, um, you know, sort of move it to something positive instead of the gloom and doom. And uh, it was interesting. I do a lot of different uh, conferences and panels and and I was on a, uh, a panel with a person that was studying um, transhumanism and death positive and 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 it was sort of the I didn't really I'd never heard of those things before and I didn't really know what it was and he was like well you're in the death positive movement and I was like well I might. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they they droned like, you in okay. when you weren't looking. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, I, I'm gonna have to look it up because I don't know what that is, and I'm also gonna have to look up transhumanism, yeah, and but- you know, try to figure out what you're talking about. But I I love Caitlin's uh you know sort of the the green deaths and mm-hmm. and you yes know, I love I love that
1: idea yeah
2: yeah yeah and celebrations and and I also love the idea of um, this whole new It's not that new but it's sort of new to me Is the death doulas um, yeah. And you know they're like a midwife But they help you through death And So I love that, that That's happening And that they, are, they help people die And it's not just hospice But it's you know people that need a little help Dying or they need a little help Maybe talking to their families About dying or right. making decisions About having a positive death And making decisions about, you know, my, my, here's how I want to experience my end of life. And, you know, sort of figuring out how to talk to families about dying and, and how to bring it to a, you know, sort of a dining room conversation instead of, you know, no, no, we don't talk about that. And, getting it away from if we talk about it doesn't mean it's going to happen if right. we talk about getting pregnant doesn't mean you're going to get pregnant oh you know and you're so, here
1: yeah exactly yeah, yeah. we all know and we're going to so- die we're not even all going to get pregnant but we all are going to die <laughs>
2: right, <laughs> right. yeah you know, and and i love that those conversations are happening i i you know i sort of like you say, been following this Caitlin, and then I'm, I have a lot of um, death doulas and everybody that I sort of keep track of and, you know, sort of green burials. And I, and like you say, this death positive movement, I think, is is really good. And, and uh, it, when I was doing my first degree, um, I was, you know, still kind of experimenting with death and the macabre. And, and I wrote a paper called Shot Before You Drop. You know, and it was just a you know sort of a humorous attempt at you know make some plans, talk to your family, you know, do those things. We're all dying, so you know, go shop it out. Don't leave it yeah. to your family to do your you know uh, service or whatever after you're dead when they're in that really difficult time where they can't make any decisions or you know it's it's sad for them. So and i was i was big on saying you know pick out your music or if you right. want music or yeah. if you want entertainers but it or.
1: it's actually a yeah. cultural practice you you could change in a generation you know if if people mm-hmm. just start talking with their kids with their families really openly i mean we've mm-hmm. gotten a lot more open about other things in this society but it does seem like it could make the whole process and celebrations around it or acknowledgement much easier to deal with and and also um, could be something where you feel you have the support because the person who's living could also be help thinking what mm-hmm. would this person I might be leaving behind, um, especially when you get a diagnosis, right? You, you don't want it right. to be like only then that you start thinking about it. Um, so not to be macabre, but um, it would seem that if we were more engaged with all of this, right, right, it would come more naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for that. I think I think everyone should be reading Caitlin Daltrey's books. Right, it's right. a great way to start. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. And you know that when we do the cemetery tours, uh, a lot of times we do them with um, student groups as well, and a lot of times when I start the tour, the kids always are kind of jittery and they kind of always are like, Oh, I don't want to go in the cemetery, you know, and I don't want to um, it's scary in there. It's spooky, you know? And so that is something that I try to change as well because that idea, you know, I think that's, that pretty much sums up what we think about death. It's scary. It's spooky. It's icky. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to deal with it, but it's really, it's it, it, you know, it, it is um like you said it's going to happen to everybody and we do have to think about it and we can think about it a little bit differently so so lily i wanna um i want to kind of circle back around to what you do today and i want to talk about what you've been doing more recently during this time of the pandemic um, with covid and you've spent some time in new york city working as a condolence specialist helping covid-19 patients families in the New York City area through this recovery process. So can you talk a little bit more about about this?
2: Yeah, I I was deployed through um, Kenyan International Emergency Services to go help at the beginning of the um, pandemic. So it was in April of 2020 and so when we didn't know what was happening and our our deaths at the time were 4,000 or whatever they were at the time and and so we didn't really know what we were walking into or or how devastating this pandemic would be and so you know I I sort of wish I was more of a condolence person for the families but what I ended up being was the person that picked up bodies you know, collected bodies. I would go with a a military team or, you know, people from our group and we would just pick up bodies. And so sometimes the people were alone and had died at home. And so we would pick them up that way. Or sometimes we would encounter um, a few family members to a bunch of family members. And, and so, you know, that's what I did. And, and so it was a really Interesting experience because um, you know I I couldn't I, I couldn't share it and we couldn't really share it because of our clients and and so it was um, pretty scary and then to come home you know to Montana and uh, people were like oh right well it's not going to happen and it's mm. fake and that you know COVID's not real and you know I said well it's coming. You know, from what we saw, it's coming and it's it's not done with us. And it's absolutely going to spread. And, you know, at the time, I think people were thinking it just happened to old people. You mm-hmm. know, this just happens right. to old people. Right. And, and I was not seeing that. And uh, what I was seeing was frightening. Mm. And uh, I, I just couldn't share it. I couldn't. I, I often think about if we could have shared the reality if it would be as bad. Mm, Really? And, you know, I think about that. And I think if people could, could have really been as freaked out as I was, or as freaked out as our team was, then it might not have been, it didn't have to be this way. (laughs) It didn't have to be over 700,000 people dead. You know, it didn't have to be 2300 Montanans so far dead. It didn't have to be this way. And Mm -hmm. so I, you know, I often think about because we didn't, we weren't able to engage in those conversations and we weren't able, you know, we had to keep it confidential. And, and I just, I just wonder or think about how it might've been less death. And so it was tough. Yeah. Yeah. It was a tough thing to do. And, and so but i'm happy i did it it was an amazing experience and you know people were wonderful and and so really good team to work with and wow
0: <sighs> yeah you know it just makes me think of uh, you know we're living through historic times of course um with this pandemic but when you talk about that you know it, it reminds me of the yellow fever epidemics of the 1700s in our country you know so we we often are on this day-to-day basis just living this life but really we're going through these epic scenarios that you just described and that we read about and are horrified by and and you went through that it's it's well it's hard
2: and to I, grapple, I think sure. a lot about i think about like smallpox or whatever yeah. and i mm-hmm. and i think about mm-hmm. because it expresses expressed itself on the outside that you could actually see the smallpox. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, COVID, you couldn't see it. So, you know, it, it, I don't know if people just didn't, you know, didn't or don't take it uh, seriously because they don't, it's not expressed Mm -hmm. in the body or that, you know, I don't know, but I often think of, you know, smallpox and things like that where, you know, you could see it and Mm -hmm. there it was and,
0: and, you know, so, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, th- well, that must have been um, a very hard time for you. So, but I'm sure those families were so grateful for your, your work and what you did there. So yeah, I were. do want to, I want to change directions a little bit again <laughs> and talk about something um, that you you teach about, which is dark tourism, which kind of revolves into everything that we're talking about today, you know, and I've been talking about our cemetery tours that we're doing that are so popular right now because people just love dark tourism they love murder and mayhem and of course our most popular walking tour is murders madams and mediums (laughs) and so what brings people to this you know what why does tragedy attract people and why do we as humans have to experience this and think about this and go like um, spend money to be horrified (laughs) What is it within us?
2: Well, you know, and, and I think that that is, you know, sort of the question. And I think it changes. And, and I think it, it comes down to people's motivation at the time. And, you know, you can look at some people have just sort of a, a general fascination with death. And so they show up and they're interested. Or you find that these types of things or these types of tours or adventures or tourism is because people know and value the person, the decedent or somebody that's died. So you see the, you know, people flocking to Kurt Cobain's house in Seattle or, or, you know, Paris where princess Diana wrecked, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so they have a, they have an emotional response to a site And so they connect with that site or, you know, there's also another, you know, sort of element, which is sort of the collective place identity. So it could be either um, cultural, political, religious, um, those different values where people will go um, to a particular cemetery or, uh, you know, a a battlefield or whatever. And so, you know, I just watched the show the other day on the Civil War, you know, and people going to different battlefields or whatever. And so it, it can be a, a a number of different reasons. Um, another one is um, sometimes educational, like you guys is, mm-hmm. or experiential. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, we went to D.C. to the Holocaust Museum mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, you know, you sort of become, oh, you have a card and you become sort of that person, whoever's card you get. And so it's that experience and, and, you know, it's tied to the, you know, this atrocity that happened. And so it, it brings you, you know, it's a guided tour and it brings you through these, these emotions and, and um, things like that. So educational, it's an experience, or then you have commemoration or, uh, commodification. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of times I'll go to a place and I want the t-shirt. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm I working on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, right. you know, I mean, if the right people set something up, I mean, you, you go for, maybe you show up and you sleep in the, the bedroom where Lizzie Borden's, you know, stepmom got butchered and it comes with a, you know, I survived the the night in, in, you know, the bedroom, or, you know, you go on a walking tour of Jack the Ripper, you know, where did he go? And, you know, and, and you come home with a t-shirt, or you come home with the mm-hmm. pictures, or, or, you know, it, it's also to be able to share this with our social media. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody loves a, a provocative Instagram, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what's more provocative than death, and mm-hmm.
1: sex, but if you could do the two, right. uh, kittens, kittens. are sometimes. Though.
2: I don't know, like animal,
1: baby animals. But um, right. but we can get right. back to death and sex. That's fine.
2: right, <laughs> right. I'm the one that likes all of the Rex Chapman's uh, dog, silly dog things. But um, no, but I I think it, it. You know, it's sort of being provocative too. Mm. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, ooh, I want. Yeah. You know, I want the. I want the most likes or Mm -hmm. going viral or you know how weird can this be or yeah right you know um but i think it just depends on sort of the person and 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 what they want to get out of it i think very few people go to um you know Cemetery or a battlefield or whatever, just to be a bystander. I think we you have know, to it's, start
1: it's, doing TikToks in the cemetery, Crystal. Yeah. I think oh, this man. might Not be sure. the way to kind of like, I mean, everybody's all about that pug noodles. Like, is it a bones day or a no bones day? Which might be very appropriate for our conversation with you. But like, right. maybe we need right. to come up with a version of that for a cemetery so. tour. Oh, man. <laughs> now I'm going to watch. That might be on the edge. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think if we rope in the young people to help us, they'll, they'll figure it out. Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah so so Lily this has been um, <laughs> such a fascinating discussion today and I, I just want to um, ask one last question you and your husband Stocky White who is an archaeologist you have your own consulting company as we mentioned Bone and Stone Sciences, which is a great name and you provide uh, anthropological and archaeological consulting services and workshops so um, I wondered if you could tell us um, when uh, your next one might be or what it might be about and um, sort of let people know if they are interested, uh, what something like a workshop with you guys would look like?
2: Well, I, I do a couple webinars. And so I have a webinar coming up. And it's called um, Bone or Stone, human or non human. And I Ooh, set it I up. It's, yeah, it's a two hour webinar. And I've set it up mostly for sort of crime scene law enforcement, um, or people that j- just want to you know, take the course. By, do you
1: teach them uh, to lick the bone to see if it sticks to your tongue? Otherwise, is, it's a stone.
2: The, yep. That's one of the questions on the test. <laughs> I, I know that, but and it, I'm just
1: an archaeologist, so I feel pretty right. about that. I'm like,
2: don't you lick it. Especially the crime scene people, I'm like, do not lick it. Do not. And why lick
1: would it. you not lick it? Well, there's no. a DNA issue there. Yeah, but usually there when we're in the field, we're like, yeah, you could lick it. Like, if you don't know which yeah. bucket to throw it in. And students are like, really? We're like, really? <laughs>
2: you know the fun part is that like archaeologists do that a lot you know right. it's like oh, well, you know it's it's just you know stone or whatever well these people that i'm teaching are crime scene yeah <laughs> get out there like yeah you know? yeah it's, it's right. completely yeah. Totally different, different. <laughs> yes oh as right. it should oh, be right. yep oh, yeah <laughs> right Uh, So I have that one. And then I have the one coming up with Dr. Parsons uh, in San Diego. And, and so we just try to keep it fresh and, you know, try to keep it exciting. And um, I'm creating a couple different ones. And I think Stock and I will um, create a couple together that that we can I can use his, you know, arc powers and I'll use my, Mm -hmm. my death dying and and bone powers and but he's really busy he works for fema and so he's he works in the dining room and i work over here uh, (laughs) all fema
1: related business goes (laughs) into the dining area
2: (laughs) right right he's totally taken over the the dining room so he doesn't get out very much and so mostly the the clients are sort of my I see your end.
1: Got it. He's got other work, contract work.
2: Yeah. 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 He likes it and sort of, you know, looks at my paper and peeks over the side and sees what you're up to. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well that's great. Well thank you so much, Lily. Um I think it's so important that we really, you know, start to engage closer with death and dying. And so and your work is so fascinating. So thanks for talking about it with us today. We so enjoyed it.
1: Thank you. We're so grateful. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure. I hope we uh, have you on again and you might see us popping into one of your webinars one of these times. Um, So thank you. And thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up in your podcast feed each week. And consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, but only if it's a positive review. Right. Thanks for listening today. (laughs) We hope you can join us again to find out more About the The dirt dirt on on the the past. past.
0: And we'd love to give a big shout out to our sponsor, the Western Heritage Center, located in Billings, Montana. They are a museum with the mission to collect, preserve, and tell the stories of the people and places of the Yellowstone River Valley and the Northern High Plains region. They do this in so many ways throughout the museum, but they also have a very active outreach program. They do presentations throughout the region and actually the state of Montana. In fact, their director, Kevin Koistra, did a podcast with us uh, about a year ago Mm -hmm. on Hazel Hunkins, a suffragist um, who was amazing who grew up in the Billings area. So if you're in Billings Check out their museum. They have some wonderful exhibits. They have one that's coming online soon called Conquering Diseases of the Past, which sounds fascinating and right along the line of what we were talking with you today. And very relevant, exactly. Yeah, today with Lily. So thank you. And um, make sure to check out the Western Heritage Center.
1: So a big thank you also to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin. Thanks to Lawson Alegria for the amazing music and to John Chadwell for help getting this podcast out into the world. Thanks, everyone.